0: Howdy. This is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Michael Nielsen, a scientist who has worked on quantum computing, AI, and more. You can learn more about his varied interests at michaelnotebook.com. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Jim. Yeah, it's good to have you here today. But today, we're not going to talk about quantum computing, nor AI, but rather one of Michael's other interests, meta-science. If you are interested in quantum computing and our quantum universe, I had a great Chat with Seth Lloyd back a ways on EP 79. Feel free to check it out. I'm using as a starting point for our conversation today Michael's recent essay/slash short book with co-author Kanjun Kui. Is that how you pronounce that?
1: Q. Kanjun Q.
0: Kanjun Q. 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 <laughs> Q. Okay. Titled A Vision of Metascience, An Engine of Improvement for the Social Processes of Science. So with that out of the way, let's just hop in. So, what is meta science?
1: Uh, it's a little bit up for uh, grabs at this point, Jim. I mean, it's it's not quite a field; it's more of a proto field than anything else. So, I, I guess you you get to define it. And the part of the point of the essay for us, anyway, was just figuring out uh, what we thought the opportunity was. Basically, really, I mean, the, it's it's in the it's in the the subtitle you read, thinking of it as a, a, a an engine of improvement for, for science, sort of a way of figuring out what institutions, what social processes uh, might work best to support discovery. It's kind of the, the short version.
0: Yeah, as we were talking about in the pregame, I kind of think about it as like any set of cultural, uh, cultural institutions as a series of knobs, which may or may not be obvious, right? And how do you set the knobs? How do you invent new knobs, et cetera? And it's funny that while well, there's been philosophy of science for quite a while, which has had some impact on science, the idea of meta-science studying science as an engine, as a process, is not really something that there's been a whole lot of, which is kind of surprising considering the stakes. I was trying to figure out how much money is spent worldwide on science. And it's funny, when you do a Google, you mostly get R&D spending, which comes out at about $2.4 trillion. You take the usual rule of thumb that maybe 15% of that's actual science. We're probably talking something on the order of $360 billion, maybe. Does that seem like a reasonable number
1: for you? It's pretty, pretty reasonable. I think the, the NSF tries to keep track, and they usually estimate, I think it's about $400 billion for basic science uh, worldwide. So there you, you're about, almost, almost on the money.
0: Yeah, not bad for a, a swag based on a simple heuristic. And so we're talking about big stakes here. I mean, that's, you know, something on the order of more than half the U.S. defense budget. You know, so we're talking about some big impact. But More importantly, you know, the unfolding of our society, what we have as a human race, depends very significantly on how well we do our science. And it would certainly seem that this bears some serious consideration. So let's now talk about what, give an example here for folks, which you did a great job in the, in, in the essay, Putting the meta in meta science. You talked about and is a very vivid example I found from Nick Z- Zabo. How is he Satoshi? I don't know. It could be. <laughs> Probably the best candidate out there. Anyway, you tell the story in the early Renaissance, sailing, and all that stuff. This this really this, this was really very vivid for me to bring the, the meta into meta
1: science. Well, just the idea so, so uh, just to give your listeners some context, this isn't related to science in, in any way. It's really a question about. To what extent systems change, uh, and in particular change in the way things are financed, can have an impact kind of at the ground level. Uh, So if you go back to 14th century uh, Genoa, that was the time at which maritime insurance was first invented. So basically, you know, it used to be the case that uh, if you were financing an expedition. Say so you were a merchant who wanted to get goods from one part of the Mediterranean to another, your ship runs aground, well, bad luck, you're ruined. And this ability or this this creation of the concept of an insurance premium meant that instead of you know, losing your entire fortune, actually, you'd be much more likely to lose only just a, you know, a relatively small premium. So uh, to see kind of a flourishing of trade, a flourishing of shipping, You might think in advance what you needed was sort of better ships, better sailors, better training for sailors, and and so on, but actually the invention of this new abstraction, the idea of risk, the idea of parceling up risk, and finding ways of selling it and and buying it actually turned out to be at at least as important as any of those. And uh, we we sort of use it in the essay just as an example of the way in which systems change can result in massive on-the-ground changes as well.
0: And you make the good point that you know, if you go to talk to actual scientists and science administrators, they'll usually say something like, just fun good people doing good work, right? In the same way your Genovese shipping captain might say, you know, give me a little bit bigger ship with some bigger sails and maybe a stronger rudder and we'll and we'll do better. But kind of look at things from a different dimensional perspective and say, huh, there's some things that are sort of outside the system itself which define the system. So that's why I found that to be such a nice, strong, and vivid example.
1: I can, I can tell that you've uh, actually asked that question, Jim. Uh, just the, uh, the tone of voice you use is remarkably similar. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. I think, I mean, sort of one other thing as well that, that really contributes there to why people are sometimes skeptical, there's not really any mechanism for kind of institutional change. In fact, there's a lot of uh, centralized bottlenecks so, you know, you chat with a lot of people, they'll complain about the National Institutes of Health or something like this, but to get any change, really their only sort of vector of change is actually to try and convince the director, you know, that the change should be made. And that's a, you know, that's quite a centralised kind of a bottleneck. That's also sort of a reason for, for, for scepticism of, of science, that if you can't actually make large changes, it all starts to seem a little bit like, you know, just sort of abstract theorising. Uh, rather than something that can concretely be done.
0: And one of the things I liked about the paper, it was a mix of abstract theorizing and concrete things that could be done, but without losing the abstract, right? At the Santa Fe Institute, where I've spent a lot of time, we try to do theory, practice theory. Our side tends to be the theory, but we generally partner with people that are doing experiments in the field or, or gathering data. Because otherwise, uh, of course, the theorists just like to sit in the, in the closer door and just theorize, right? And the Experimentalists just want to experiment. You got to get the two together to really have good generative science, in my mind. Anyway, before we jump into the next topic, a term that you used, which I thought was, again, quite apropos, was the concept of intellectual dark matter. Why don't you tell us what you meant by that?
1: I just mean that there's an awful lot which scientists know, which, uh, you know, sort of project ideas or possibilities, which, however, there's no sort of institutional awareness of these things. Let me give you uh, just two examples to illustrate the point. One is kind of fictional. The other one is actually happening. I'll start with the fictional one first. One of the uh, program proposals that we make in the piece is for what we call the the century grant program. So it's simply basically just to put out a call saying, uh, look, does anybody have any ideas for scientific projects which shouldn't be funded for three years or five years or 10 years, but no, funded for 100 years? Um, And there's a few examples of this in the past. Probably the the most famous is the Mauna Loa Observatory, which is where they found that carbon dioxide is increasing. There's a few others, the Framingham Heart Study and and whatnot. But they're all done in this very bespoke way. And instead we sort of say, well, let's tip this upside down and say, actually, there's probably a ton of such ideas out there in the world, sort of in the, the minds of individual scientists, but they're not visible to institutions at all at the moment. They're a type of intellectual dark matter Maybe you should just actually essentially kind of build a detector for them, sort of say, We're gonna we're gonna do this uh, kind of funding. What are your ideas? So that's sort of a theoretical example and, and an example that I really like that is just coming into existence right at the moment. Some friends of mine, Adam Marblestone and Anastasia Gamek, have started what they call focused research organizations. And basically this is the, again, it's it's like taking sort of something that's done bespoke in the past, something like LIGO or the Large Hadron Collider, and sort of trying to do it at scale. So they're saying, let's find projects which might cost a few tens of millions of dollars, let's say fifty million dollars, where we really we just we understand how to build some new instrument or take some new data set, and we just kind of need to we need to assemble the right group of fifty or a hundred people. To go and do it, maybe over five years or ten years, and their thesis is that actually scientists, you know, again, this is a type of intellectual dark matter. There's actually a lot of ideas uh, for these focused research organisations that are out there in the heads of individual scientists, but at the moment they don't have any way of going to the National Science Foundation or the NIH or anybody like that, and 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 you know, there is no program to do it. So they're again, they're, they're kind of building a detector for this this intellectual dark matter, and they're starting to. Yeah, this time to fund some pretty cool, some pretty cool things doing it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting you mentioned that because one of my own critiques so particularly academic science is it's you know built around the scope of a principal investigator plus some graduate students who turn over every four or five six years. Nowadays, like a, a few research scientists thrown in the mix, but the the depth of problem you can attack with that model is only so deep. And you run into other alternative models, for instance, spend a fair bit of time at the MIT Brain and Cognitive Science Department, where I'm on the visiting Mm -hmm. committee, which is kind of a governance board for it. So I I know what they do pretty deeply. Last time I was up there, I went over and talked to the Broad Institute, which is across the street. And they do something quite differently. They have six projects targeted on big, big, big problems. They've funded each one with about $100 million, and the teams are about 70% Professional research scientists. There's a PI nominally in charge, but it's kind of the the research scientists that really drive it. And these are you know multi-year, ten-year or more projects, and very and they're uh, they're they're attacking a class of question which it would not be feasible to ask. If you were a professor in a typical academic department with five graduate students, two postdocs, and one research scientist, so I think that's actually very interesting. And and you have a little graphic in the in in the paper kind of shows the whole space of science and dis- scientific design and the current world of science, a small subset, maybe twenty percent of the space. And you know I think things like that are, are very very apropos. The other thing that's worth talking about is how ad hoc and frozen accidental a lot of our institutional structure is, right? You know, think about the invention of the scientific journal, right? Some guys writing to each other back in Europe in the late 17th century. And one of my favorites, or let's say least favorite, but a a frozen accident that's become scarily prominent is the silly thing called the H-Index, i like, how did that happen, right? Somebody, uh, okay. uh, you know, I've heard all kinds of weird stories how it got invented, you know. It's a, I don't even remember the calculation, but it's some calculation of the number of papers written, divided by the... Impact factorism and it supposedly indicates you know who's hot shit in, in science, and it's actually a pretty damn arbitrary figure. And you could you could even argue that it, it's for certain kinds of things that you're looking for, it may actually be an, an anti indicator. But somehow it's now become this thing that in many disciplines very prominent on people's CVs. My age factor is four point
1: three. Whoa, well, aren't
0: I cool, right? <laughs>
1: yep you've uh, you you you've, again you've, you you certainly talked to some people about this they, they do i mean what's one thing that's scary is actually how much scientists will know about each other's h HM indices as well yeah, oh um, absolutely not, not just their own yeah I mean, absolutely anyway. and
0: and it's you know it's a measure with absolutely no theoretical justification right it's completely ad hoc. You know, it's not entirely worthless, uh, or put it this way, there's some signal there, but signal of what? I don't think anybody actually knows. It's uh, quite interesting, and of course, the other one that was a frozen accident is the uh, totally changed actually the organization of the field of science was the invention of impact factors by Eugene Garfield and and friends at. ISI. In fact, I had no fair bit about them because oddly enough, when I was the CTO of Thomson Reuters, one of our companies was Web of Science. And I never did get to meet Garfield, even though he was still alive in those days. He came and visited occasionally, but I did work with the business leaders of that business a fair bit and got to understand it and what a racket that turned into, right? (laughs) And again, if Eugene Garfield hadn't invented this Method of calculating impact factors. He and other fo- some other folks, the worship of the impact factor would not have completely changed how how science is structured.
1: It's funny too because I mean Garfield himself had quite mixed feelings about about that stuff. You know, he wrote uh, several papers where he basically talks about sort of the limits of citation analysis and the limits of ideas like like impact factor. But uh, you know, once it was created, it was a little bit of a sort of a beast that he couldn't. Couldn't control. I heard the uh, CEO of what was it? it was a Springer Springer Verlag at the time, sort of say on stage once how wonderful it was that you know journals just had this sort of automatic uh, quality branding that they could use to sell, and what an advantage this was for, from sort of a sales pitch point of view. And of course, he was talking about impact factor, which is you know, sort of go to your librarians and say, well, this has such and such an impact factor, so therefore it should be in your budget. You know, yep. it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense
0: yeah and and there's, there's also the, the old i think it was it campbell's law one of these guys laws that you know once something becomes a measure that people yeah. behave upon the measure is no longer much good probably whatever it was garfield found is different than what those factors mean today yeah. it's quite interesting but again the point i think the bigger point the meta meta point is that our scientific operating system is a whole series of frozen accidents, essentially, that wasn't thought through, wasn't optimized. And you gave a, a nice little funny story early in the paper about, imagine some aliens came down and looked at how we did science. Would they say everything that we did was exactly right? And of course, the obvious answer was, hell no, right? And so one could argue that uh, science is at least an attempt, and of course it won't get it right either, but it's at least an attempt to back off a little bit and say, all right, how can we tweak the system? What what things are counterproductive or useless or both, you know, what things are productive but could be made better, et cetera. And
1: there's a really really funny thing about about you know, you talk about sort of the way stuff gets frozen and you, you read sort of the early history of NSF, NIH, DARPA, all these organizations, you know, there's so much that was just kind of made up on the fly, sort of often with the idea of we'll fix it later. But then there's no mechanism for change within a a lot of these organisations. So, in fact, it becomes impossible to fix later. You know, I don't know, how is the NIH going to fix its panel system? They have whatever it is, 180 different areas or something now. They sort of need to get this enormous amount of buy-in from some incredible number of people before they could do it. So it just gets very, very hard. I don't think it's actually an accident in some ways that an organisation like DARPA, it's pretty functional in some ways, and I think it's maybe this is just speculation. Maybe because they're a little bit later than some of the others, so they actually get to look and say, "Well, we don't like the way they did this, that, or the other thing, so we're going to design our system uh, to be to be better." But once the system itself is in place, it's unless it's designed to change, it's it's pretty hard to change.
0: Indeed, it's interesting. I just read an article recently somewhere about how the baby DARPAs are not doing very well. You know, there's now an energy DARPA and I think there's an environment DARPA, and there's like three or four or five of them. And this article basically looked into them and said, none of them are even close to the level of creativity and the impact that the original DARPA had. And, it, you know, it may well have been that the original DARPA was, you know, a fortuitous design and the right people at the right time.
1: I had to, I had to know. I mean, you, you know, like you have to read those articles, I think with a little bit of, Skepticism. Sometimes there's a political agenda which you don't necessarily know. And there's also, I mean, there's just the the big fact, which is a lot of these, like, so the energy DARPA, that's what is it? It's 13 years old now. Well, when the original DARPA was 13 years old, they wouldn't have looked too crash hot either. They'd done some things which, in retrospect, we know were very important. But at the time, you know, what that's 19, uh, 13 years after would have been what, 1971. I think. So they'd already done the work that led to the creation of the internet. But in 1971, you couldn't have you couldn't have pointed to anything. Nobody would have nobody would have been excited by that. They would have just sort of yeah. shrugged their shoulders and gone, "Well, okay, you know, maybe that'll be important, but I yeah,
0: don't that, see it right now." Yeah, in fact,
1: right? 1971,
0: you would look at that and say, "What a simple-minded protocol. Why would anybody use a piece of crap like that?" Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I actually know the two guys that designed TCP/IP and they had no idea either. Right? <laughs> They were uh yeah so anyway yeah that's a good point too we've been talking a fair bit in up in theory space and kind Mm -hmm. of evolutionary theory frozen accidents things like that maybe for the audience it'd be useful now to bring it down to some tangible examples and we'll get back to process and theory again and you laid out early in the paper a a list of examples and you made it clear that you don't necessarily bet that these are all the best possible ideas or an exhaustive list or anything else, but let's let's pop through a couple of them. You mentioned the century grants, which mm-hmm. is the idea of attracting the dark matter of things that could take up to 100 years. Today, nobody bothered proposing that because there is no funding source. And if there was a funding source, maybe we'd get great ideas. But another one, this, this I thought was very nerdy, and I liked it for that reason, <laughs> which was fund by variance. Maybe you could tell yeah. people what that one is.
1: Actually, it, it for me, anyway, it comes out of conversations with venture capitalist friends. Uh, one, one VC friend in particular commented to me that it, unless, unless at least one of the partners at his firm strongly opposes, you know, a, a bet, they, they won't invest. And, the yeah you know, the reasoning was pretty good, which is his reasoning was that in venture, you make all your money, you know, it's not enough to be right. Everybody else needs to be wrong. And as he explained, you know, sort of the, the best evidence that the other people are going to be wrong, is is if somebody who he thinks is very smart and respects um, strongly disagrees with the investment. There's something to that in science as well. Certainly a lot of the most important discoveries were, particularly early on, very controversial or in some cases just completely illegible. Things like, I don't know, actually the, the, the meteor impact theory of the dinosaur extinction. Even five years after the paper had been published, most paleontologists still thought this was wrong. There's this great New York Times article uh, where they actually went off and polled a whole bunch of the, the paleontology community, and they also, you know, a lot of them thought the the meteor impact theory was crazy. You know, and there's many, many examples like this where you know often good ideas are just very polarizing, and rather than trying to get sort of consensus uh, that this is a great idea, sometimes you want you know a few people to say oh, I absolutely love this idea, and maybe a few other people say I absolutely hate this idea. Rather than having you know, a bunch of people say, yeah, this is a pretty good idea, which is, I think, the more common situation in the consensus based model we have at the moment.
0: And the beauty, you can actually turn it into an algorithm, right? You can calculate yeah. the variance, right, from the, yeah. from the referees. So you could actually have, you know, well, this one, you know, it doesn't have to even be a judgment call. It could be a straightforward calculation. Another one I thought was very clever, and you presented it in a good punchy fashion, was failure audits. You know, everybody claims they do high-risk audit. And then you quoted some, I forget which uh, agency, we do high-risk science. Uh,
1: European Research Council. And yeah. It's
0: like, you know, 93% of our stuff works. Well, guess what, dudes, right? Mm-hmm. So talk talk to us about failure audits and firing yeah. uh, program
1: managers who don't fail enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing you pointed out this 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 just terror. I mean, to, what about the European Research Council? Does have this long report on their own activities, talking about how high risk everything is, but also it is. It's it's like ninety percent of the stuff uh, works. So I don't know, I don't know quite what they're talking about, but um, yeah, the um, certainly after the fact, if you're running a funder and uh, after a few years you start to evaluate the success or failure of your programs. I've noticed in ch- chatting with individual funders, if you ask them what their big failures are, usually they get really tongue tied. I like to talk about how they support high-risk research, but actually ask, you know, where are the craters left upon impact? They, uh, you know, they usually don't actually have a list at, at, at hand, and that's starting to smell a bit suspicious to me. So I think just being sort of honest about it and basically writing down your list of failures, maybe making it public, kind of an anti-portfolio, but then also just evaluating, you know, if you think that you have a high-risk program and 50% of the stuff isn't failing, maybe there's a bit of a problem. Maybe you're actually not taking enough risk and, uh, I mean, ultimately, you can you could imagine having the, the program manager or maybe the director of the funder, you know, sort of job under threat if they don't actually, you know, produce what they claim. O- way I like to think of it is, you know, so many funders will say they want high-risk work, but they will their processes ensure that they will only fund low-risk staff. So they're not buying what they say that they're buying. And this would be a way of hopefully correcting that particularly if it's done publicly particularly if it, you know if they actually publish the results of their failure audit that actually starts to build credibility you know scientists know that when a funder says that they want to support high risk work they know that usually that that's not true and so of course they're very you know cautious about I mean why waste your time submitting a genuinely high risk proposal when you don't expect it to be actually funded if a funder is however credibly saying look in the past we really have done this Then it starts to become a little bit more interesting if you're on the sort of the application side as well.
0: Let me add one Im- improvement to your proposal there, which, <laughs> which is that, of course, being humans, being gaming the system, uh, if that, yeah. that were the rule, they're going to intentionally fund a certain number of bozo projects of incompetent buffoons. So, uh, so I, add the make it an actual failure audit. <laughs> and then, in, in, in my venture oh. capital work, I, when I'm you know the, trying to assess a team, look at their successes, their track record. I look for noble failures right? As opposed yeah. to incompetent failures or yeah. bozo failures, right? Yeah. And so I would add to your idea that there needs to be something like an identification of noble and worthy failures. And to distinguish them just from bozos and, you know, just bad ideas. And
1: yeah, that's a great term.
0: Yeah. No, that's I, a great I, term. I think it's a really good one. And then the last, we'll go on to, uh, there's some other ones in your list, but one that I personally feel very strongly about as you propose an open source initiative we talked about the, you know, kind of the the institutional lack of depth in the classic PI plus a few graduate students and a postdoc or two. And it really shows in the software they create. In fact, I have a a, a term for it, which is graduate student wear. And it sort of works for them. But then when they try to put it out for other people, uh, there aren't been a few that have been brilliant. There certainly have been a few. Some of my friends at George Mason have put out the Mason agent-based modeling system, for instance, which is really an incredible set of tools. University of Chicago with their star logo. So occasionally graduate student wear turns into really good software, but usually it doesn't. And, you know, the idea of putting more money into professionalizing scientific software, which is the way I read Open uh, Source Institute, strikes me as a great idea. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's partially putting more money into it. There's actually, I mean, there's a few different initiatives which are putting more money into it, but there's still not, you know, the, the basic kind of unit of work is still the paper, even for the people doing that. And you can just imagine sort of switching, you know, to an economy where the basic unit of work is in fact the, the software package. And that, that would, would change a lot of things. You think about the way certain art institutes, you know, they're not about, you don't get a job at those art institutes by showing the 50 wonderful high-impact papers you wrote. You get it by uh, talking, you know, actually showing the portfolio of artistic work that you do. If you take seriously the idea that software is actually an important expression of research ideas, then, uh, you know, that ought to be the fundamental thing sometimes. You don't have these sort of stupid fig leaf papers that are being written which then makes people actually, you know, they waste all their time writing these papers, it becomes actually the important thing rather than focusing on the, the real thing. A, a really good example actually is, which some listeners might be familiar with, is, is Jupyter Notebook, yeah, yeah, which is this incredibly important piece of software now, just this kind of basic operating environment for lots of data science, lots of AI work, and tons of other things. God, the amount of scientific work that's done there is just incredible. That's started by Fernando Perez at Berkeley, but I think Fando had a lot of trouble. I mean, really just caused by the fact that fundamentally the university and his academic colleagues wanted him to be writing papers about it, not not making the software better. And so, you know, because he's very persistent and very hardworking, working, it, it all kind of worked out. But I don't know, that that's that's bad news that you want the the thing itself, Jupiter, to be you know, the quality of that to actually be the, the object of evaluation so the, the, the proposal for the open source institute is is really just to, to start to set up a, you know, a research institute or research institutes where the, the basic unit of evaluation is is software it's not the paper yeah.
0: and, I, and I'd suggest that a, an additional boost that will come from that is it will draw people different kinds of people in. It'll bring in really good software engineers who also are interested and passionate about scientists, but actually aren't research science type people. And that, not, such people exist. I know for sure that they exist, and that would upgrade the the whole ecosystem by having a an honorable home where they get great status for you know creating same way somebody gets a paper in Nature. Someone gets a
1: absolutely absolutely paper
0: that's broadly used and broadly cited. For instance, yeah. would be a wonderful thing. Last one before we move on from your list, and then people interested reading the paper. There's more in this first list, and this is one that I hadn't thought of. But I thought it was really interesting. Is at the bench fellowships.
1: Tell us about that. Actually, it's just James Phillips pointed this out to me that at the, what is it, the Laboratory for Molecular Bioscience, which is this incredibly famous molecular biology place in Cambridge, they, uh, you know, most work, certainly in most American universities, is is done by grad students. The sort of old joke is that PIs are often machines for turning coffee into grant applications. They're not actually doing the work. And you know, if the work is very simple and doesn't require a lot of training, that maybe makes sense. But if there's a lot of returns to increased expertise, then actually you sometimes want the people who've been doing it for 20 years to actually be at the bench. And so we just propose you know, essentially a fellowship to support uh, senior scientists who want to go back and just do their own thing, maybe in collaboration with two or three other people, which was the Bell Labs model. It was the, it's the LMB model. And there's a couple of other famous places where that was true. Somebody like uh, Sidney Brenner, classic at the LMB, you know, did his Nobel Prize winning work with two or three other people, rather than running a lab with 30 grad students where he didn't really know the details of anything that was going on. And I think that kind of deep expertise, it just enables you to do things that are impossible in any other way.
0: Yeah, and and I was lucky enough to tour Bell Labs and it's still glory days and it was amazing these really famous guys actually did work what a concept right
1: (laughs) yeah yeah for sure
0: yeah and uh and the other place where that still does exist is in some of the business labs. For instance, Microsoft Research very much works that way. You know, small small teams of people working for sometimes years on really important projects. And so it does exist, but not much in
1: academia. And it would be great to be able to bring that back. Gee, a place where it does in academia, which is, I think, really interesting, is mathematics. Hmm. Not, not everywhere in mathematics, but a lot of mathematicians, you know, they still spend 30, 50, sometimes 80 hours a week actually just doing the work. And I think mathematics is in really great shape, partially as a result of that. But the top mathematicians just are astoundingly good. They
0: proof, do proofs, right? Since I, don't, I know very little about the academic side of mathematics. That, that does make sense. Now let's move back to kind of the conceptual. One of the things that you guys talk about is a way of thinking about science funders as detectors and predictors talk about that model a
1: little bit i really wanted to provide sort of an abstract way of thinking about what funders do partially just to stimulate people to think of other other ideas and so i mean all we're saying it's the kind of the obvious point that what you're doing as a funder is really as any kind of institution Is you're you're trying to build a detector, so you you find signals of promise out there somewhere in the world, in the scientific community or outside the scientific community, which you then try and amplify. But you also you're making predictions fundamentally about the future. You know you can't know sort of in advance how things are going to come out. If you did, it wasn't not it's not really research. But there are many different inference methods that that you can use potentially. And just wanted to draw attention. I mean, you know, mentioned that very simple example before, moving from kind of a consensus-based model of funding to a variance-based model. But there's a lot of other ways you could do that. You could start to you know, package up multiple different grants where, in fact, maybe you require something like uh, they're actually working sort of in, on, on opposite hypotheses. So you're, sort of, you're, you're using one to de-risk the other or the, sort of the whole package to, to do some kind of de-risking. So that's a, another kind of change in inference method. There's a lot of, of ways one can potentially do that, do that kind of thing. So just wanted to draw a little bit of attention to to sort of those those two variables, so to speak. I mean, knobs in your previous way of thinking, they're sort of not you know, knobs that can be turned or dials that can be turned in slightly different ways, rather than just using kind of the existing the existing system, which is basically you know consensus-based peer review, pretty much pretty much everybody does.
0: And you gave some, again, to try to bring it back to the tangible for our audience, they sometimes get a little tired of our pinheaded yammering about theory. You gave some good examples. What I really liked was on the detector side. This would really force people to turn their detector sensors up to full blast, is the idea of endowed professorships by 25. You know, when I moved mm-hmm. from business to science governance, one of the you know things that struck me was how long it takes these days for people to get yeah. established in their career but to become a become a tenured professor. Now, really hard to do it much earlier than forty one or forty two, right? Holy goly, Um Back in my entrepreneurial days, I, you know, burned through about seven companies in that time, right? And uh, and so forty one or forty two before you're sort of solidly arranging. Yet we look back at the history of science and when people did yeah. what. And, you know, many, most of the best discoveries were at a much a- earlier age. So talk a little bit about this uh, this seemingly insane idea of endowed professorships for 25-year-olds.
1: I don't think it's particularly insane, particularly insane at all. Uh, you know, it's just giving, uh, it's, I mean, exactly to your point, there's no no good a priori reason to wait until somebody's 35, 40, 45 to give them tenure. It's, I think, certainly true that you'll make some mistakes if you're trying to find 23, 24-year-olds, but you're also going to prevent a lot of people from leaving who get a little bit bored. You know, a lot of my friends in Silicon Valley, they wanted to have research careers, and yet they kind of, you know, they figured out when they were 19, 22, 23, that they were going to have to wait until they were 40. They could go off and start a company. So they, they left. And that's it. I mean, in some cases, just a tremendous. I mean, it's a tremendous pity for research. Maybe it's a. I don't know. It's hard to know whether it's good for the world or not. Maybe they they should have just started companies instead. But I, I don't think it's uh, such a crazy idea to uh, to you know give people their independence at that age and see what they can do. Maybe they just do systematically something a little bit different. Einstein was twenty six in his miracle year when he made. Depending on how you count, maybe four or five kind of Nobel Prize worthy discoveries. Um, At least four. At least
0: four, right? Not bad. At least
1: four.
0: At least for for a guy who wasn't even in academia at the time, right? He couldn't get an academic job. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Doing it as a hobby on the side. On the side. I mean, did it at night or actually while he was not doing his day job, apparently. But, you know, of course, it would require some development of some new skills in the funders to, you know, essentially detect. You know these people. I don't think that's an impossible task. I think there are people that could do that.
1: I don't think so. I don't think it's really that difficult at all. I mean, you're still you'd you'd certainly be making some some guesses. You're not going to be based on somebody's 15 year track record at that age, but I mean, you're you're always guessing anyway. Gosh, I mean, there's a you know a fair number of people who tenured professors. In fact, in some cases, there's a few Nobel Prize winners who did their Nobel Prize winning work as graduate students and then pretty much did nothing else. Ever after, and of course they get they got the tenure job because everybody knew that they'd done this amazing thing. But um, you know, past results are not a guarantee of future performance, as they say. So you know, I I I I'd certainly like to see the experiment done. In fact, it, I mean, it has, it has been done a, a little bit, but but never never fully that sort of tenure by twenty five model.
0: Yeah, I think that's a it's a very interesting one. Now on the pre- predictor type activities, this was again hmm. This is something that was a completely fresh idea to me. I hadn't ever actually even focused on the fact that it's a real thing, but it obviously is. And that's what you call the illicit the, the secret thesis.
1: Talks about <laughs> yeah. that. That's, that's really clever. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, this is – I don't think it's happened to me, but I've heard a number of scientists complain, sometimes literally directly to the funder, that they don't want to tell them about their project or they don't want to tell them you – know, they know something special that they don't necessarily want to disclose because it's going to you know if it's disclosed in the grant application it will be known then by the competitor who does the review and you know if your idea is good enough sometimes that's the last thing in the world you want you want to you want to disclose I know I've I've sometimes had that where you know I'll think I'll have some special technique or or something for a problem sort of a little bit cagey in the grant application, you sort of want to claim that you've got it, but you don't actually really want to give the details. And this is crazy because, of course, this is exactly, this is the most important thing. Honestly, if, if you know, you would just give the five-line version of the grant application, it, you would go in the five lines in a sane world, but instead you're in this sort of situation where you don't want to disclose it to your competitors, and so you kind of leave it out or you wink at it a little bit. And so we just we make this proposal that says, look, there should be sort of a little, a short extra box on the, you know, some you know, some grant applications where you can just disclose any extra information that you certainly don't want to be shared with referees or, or whatnot, which the program manager can, at their discretion, d- decide actually to include in the evaluation. Now sometimes people are just going to say, oh, there's nothing, but other times I expect it would actually be the decisive, it would be the decisive, the decisive element. Again, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah,
0: let's like, yeah, let's take, apply Ryman, Ryman non-Euclidean geometry to space-time and see what we get here. It right? like <laughs> <that,
1: right? laughs> yeah, worked work out all right. Actually, I mean, it's a great example because people will sometimes people will sometimes say, "Oh, David Hilbert actually discovered the, the field equations of general relativity before Einstein. Maybe he he did it, but what they they those people don't know." Is that Einstein had actually given lectures at Göttingen with Hilbert in the audience, where he made he, he made exactly this point. And uh, uh, it's actually kind of it's, it's funny you say it. It's actually an example where you know, Hilbert, Hilbert leaned uh, quite quite heavily on having learned the secret thesis uh, in, in in advance. Anyway, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's very very cool. It's a good, a good example, right? Why this is it would be a good institutional improvement. Now, as you're moving on into in the paper, you talk about meta science as an imaginative design practice. Talk about that a little bit, and uh, then uh, the kind of people you think might be good at it and who might not be good at it.
1: Yeah, I I, I mean, you know, I gave this, at your request, this example of the invention of insurance back in Genoa in the 14th century, and, you know, that didn't rely on making better ships or better sailors or any of these kinds of things or better judgments about what expeditions to do. Instead, you introduced this new kind of abstraction that was, you know, The idea of risk, the idea of insurance, all these things were kind of extra, extra things in the world. So that's kind of a, you know, that's an act of imagination to come up with those kinds of ideas. And, and, you know, something like, uh, I mean, in a very modest way, something like the anti-portfolio or the century grant program or things like this, you know, you're introducing new abstractions or intellectual dark matter, which hopefully can be used to drive systemic changes in what kind of work is being done. So we're just we're just pointing out that really you know it is it is an imaginative thing. You you need to invent these new these new abstractions fundamentally. It's not just something uh, where it's going to be kind of handed to you on a on a on a platter. I should say I don't think that you know those ideas are necessarily quite as uh, uh, imaginative as, as maritime insurance must have been in its day. But, but it's, that's the kind of thing that we're trying to gesture at that it's not just. I you know the the reason we we, we point this out. And sort of make a big deal out of it is because it's not it's not the way that scientists tend to think about the world. They're much more interested typically, uh, I say, as a former theoretical physicist, they're much more interested typically, you know in sort of taking extant phenomena and trying to get to the bottom of them, maybe pushing things a little bit, like questions like what happens if you increase the pressure or the temperature or you drop the temperature. Those kinds of questions are very interesting, but the idea of trying to create entirely new sort of abstractions, design abstractions, is is not something that you necessarily get a whole lot of training in. It's more the kind of thing which programmers do, it's certainly the kind of thing which designers do, and we think that that's what ultimately sort of a lot of meta-scientists will, will, will do. They'll be the kind of person that thinks up clever new ways of using insurance or things like that. I don't know. It's a very long answer, but it's, it's hard oh, to- it's a good
0: answer, an important answer. And particularly, you pointed out, hey, people that drive cars don't necessarily know how to design cars. (laughs) That's
1: uh, exactly right.
0: (laughs) And actually, I took that. I stopped and paused for a minute when I read that part of the paper. I said, hmm, I wonder who might be good at it. And I came up with this very provisional answer, which is if one were to create a new discipline of meta-science, perhaps its home ought to be in the business school. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think it's pretty close to what a lot of finance people do. Like, you know, there's certainly people thinking about how, you know, to find uh, new signals of promise and then how to, you know, find good sort of, you know, ways of making predictive, you know, doing predictive reasoning. And they invent new instruments all the time. So they're designing these new abstractions. So it's, I think it's pretty close to what finance professionals do in, in some ways, at least.
0: Yeah, not just finance most like business administration, they they think of institutions and structures and signaling and information flows and decision making. You know. Yeah, my yeah. alma mater is actually the Sloan School of Business at MIT, and it was a oh, really pretty hard nosed place. Yeah, and I could I could imagine. You know, it's a bit of a stretch. It would require. Some creative, new, generative thinking. I can imagine a uh, meta-science department there.
1: (laughs) It's funny, actually, that you say that. I mean, one of the people, actually several of the people I most admire, particularly Pierre Azale, who you mentioned later on, that's where he is, exactly there. Uh,
0: <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, just the thoughts that we toss out there. All right, let's mm. move on to the next part of your paper, Part Two: the decentralized improvement of the social process of science. <laughs> Bottlenecks inhibiting central decentralized improvement. Talk a little bit about some of these barriers that are out there.
1: <laughs> if you ever, you know, want to take up a new job, uh, Jim, I think you should maybe you know go into audio book reading or something like <laughs> that. you <laughs> a nice sonorous tone. Yeah, we, I mean, this is just the point that existing institutions are not, they're not designed to change. You know, it's very much the situation of, uh, you sort of think about Blockbuster video, they didn't turn into Netflix. And, you know, there was no way, there was no institutional way by which they could change in, in that kind of way. If, certainly if people inside Blockbuster had been uh, interested in doing that kind of thing, I don't think their performance reviews would have been too good. So, you know, I mean, we sort of run down, I, I won't. Uh, try and give you a list of sort of all the bottlenecks. But this this basic point that a huge amount of change is just bottlenecked through these enormous centralised institutions. You have three or four funders uh, responsible for a massive fraction of all of the funding. I mean, the NIH alone is almost half of the funding for basic science in North America. You know, how do they change? Well, you, know, you can't convince the director to make the changes or they only have very limited bandwidth maybe they can make one or two big changes a year i think that's actually probably not even possible but it's a heck of a bottleneck i don't know i'm i'm, I'm kind of getting a bit lost here to be honest <laughs>
0: yeah you know it seems like uh you know, that those certainly true and, and and you talk about that there have been experiments at smaller scales or institutions that are quite different even our own Santa Fe institute is quite different yeah, yeah. right yeah, yeah. Kind of pride ourselves on think different, as Steve Jobs might have said. And we've been fairly successful. But we're tiny, you're like, you know, twelve full-time faculty people. You know, maybe the secret is, you know, why we call it meta, meta science at the top. You know, maybe a dictate from the Congress that 10% of funding will be used to start new funders, right? Startup funders. You talk about that a little bit, the idea of startup funders.
1: Yeah. I mean, that that uh, actually not just startup funders, but also funders with a sunset clause. Where you know sort of they're forcibly retired. If you want to get new institutional ideas, uh, maybe turning things over occasionally is a good idea. So you don't just sort of have the same old same old happening year after year, or you're not you're not stuck with the existing institutional processes. All right. There's actually, there's a lot in your question. <laughs> it's pretty hard to hard to get a through line on it. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah let's see. Well, what else can we go with on that? One of the things you talked about is, again, some of the other, you know, the frozen accidents, you know, the uh, Shanghai rankings, for instance.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> uh, essentially Zippo in the way of turnover, they make the uh, Soviet Union parliament look dynamic in comparison.
1: This is just a funny thing, I I guess I I just happened to notice a few years ago, which was there's a few sort of world rankings of research universities. The oldest is the Shanghai rankings, the oldest I know of anyway. And if you look at the top 10 uh, in that that rankings, they basically haven't changed since they started since 2003. I think there's been one organisation has moved out of the top 10, being replaced by another. But otherwise, there's just been this tiny, tiny little bits of shuffling around in the top 10. And when I tell this to scientists, they will say, "Well, you know, of course you would expect. You know, Harvard is going to stay in there all the time. You know, that's where all the best people are." And it's kind of taking for granted the idea that the best people would never ever move. Now, you know, maybe in an academic context, I mean, that seems to be true. There is this incredible stasis. But of course, in lots of other parts of the world, uh, things are very dynamic and and they, they move around a lot. I, I also, I just for comparison, looked at the largest companies in the Nasdaq. Of course, the NASDAQ in 2003 and the NASDAQ in 2022 look, you know, they're not completely different, but there's a lot of difference. Facebook, which is one of the top 10 companies now, didn't exist in 2003. And a bunch of the other companies, which are now top 10 companies, were certainly a lot smaller then um, and in some cases weren't public yet. So that's a sort of a situation where you've got this tremendous dynamism and things winking in and out. And so you get more institutional innovation um, as compared to the very static kind of a situation in academia where it's the same institutions year after year, and they have a whole lot of incentive to sort of change at the level of how they're organised. They're certainly changing the science they do because they've got mechanisms to do that, but they're not changing the way the institution itself is, is sort of uh, organised in, in dramatic ways.
0: Yeah, as we talked about earlier, the kind of the, the depth of problem with the PI graduate student model. Yeah, exactly. If, if exactly. you don't change that, you know, you're you're picking fruit from six-foot trees, right? That's unfair, my scientist friends, but there is something to that, right? It's not designed really to attack the big problems. You have to have other institutional structures to do that. Well, let's move on now to some examples of where meta-science type ideas have been coming into existence a little bit. You talked quite a bit about the rather famous open science collaboration in social psychology, and in fact, one of my earlier podcasts was with Brian Nozick, who was one of the leader of that project back in EP twelve. So, why don't you tell us a little about open science collaboration, the context of where the discipline had gotten to, and and what it might might mean for improving science?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this is an incredible example, in in my opinion, where you're really actually starting to see massive uh, change in processes inside a pretty large chunk of science. So, I mean, the basic context is for, I mean, 40 or 50 years, people doing work in psychology have been pretty sceptical of some of the basic statistical methods that they use. They're very susceptible to things like like p-hacking and the file drawer effect and, and all these other things. And, I mean, this has been known for a very, very long time, it was pretty hard to change institutions to do anything about it and so what the the center for open science has figured out i think very cleverly a way of getting some effective institutional change i mean how, how that happens is a, is a long story but that's kind of the i think the top level thing is they they, they found a way of doing it and they've found a way of doing it uh, very importantly from my point of view as an outsider they didn't need to actually be running all of the institutions. They didn't need to get everybody's consensus in advance. In fact, it was rather unpopular with a lot of people in advance, but they were able to get the changes really rolling anyway. So it's kind of an example of of decentralized change.
0: Yeah, and it it was quite interesting. You know, Brian was a tenured professor at UVA in, in one of the very top psychology departments in the country. And he couldn't get it to happen at UVA. I think he probably would would have liked to have, you know, less personal risk. And he ended up taking quite a considerable risk and jumping out into the void and setting up uh, the Center for the Open Science as uh, an independent organization. And as you point out, he might have, maybe in retrospect, that was a good thing because it was not popular amongst his colleagues, (laughs) at least a lot of them initially. Quite interesting.
1: Uh, he's got gotten got called, a, was it a, a methodological terrorist in, I think, in the New York Times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, sometimes he got to do what you gots to do, right? You know, one of the things that they have created, which I find very interesting, and, and it's starting to spread more and more journals every year, is the idea of pre-registration. I think that's, you know, it, it seems like a little subtle thing, but it's really quite profound. Maybe you could tell our audience what pre-registration is and how it differs and how it Undermine some of the, the flaws that you talk about, like p hacking and desk drawer outcomes, etc.
1: So, I mean, it, it, it does sound like kind of a very simple, obvious thing. You just you describe what experiment you're going to do in advance, and what analysis you're going to do in advance, and in particular, what questions you're trying to answer in advance. You register that on a website. You actually potentially, with registered reports, uh, can get that refereed by a journal, who decide without seeing results. Whether or not the paper is going to be published, and then you go off and you actually take the data. You now, what I mean—that that sounds crazy. In fact, it sounds completely unimportant. Like, why would you do this? And of course, the the reason why is it prevents people from sort of f- f- futzing around too much with with the data. So, you know, you take data intending to answer one question. Turns out you get a completely boring answer. It's not the thing you wanted. So instead, you do, run 67 different analyses, trying to answer different questions, and lo and behold, you discover some completely different kind of a, effect inside the data, and you publish that. Now, the problem with doing that, of course, is that if you you try enough different analyses, you will find something, but mostly what you'll actually you'll actually find is is just sort of coincidental effects inside. Yeah, the, spurious
0: uh, correlations, as we like to say.
1: Spurious correlations. So, what is it? The um, is a correlation, I think, between unemployment in Greece and the rise of Facebook. (laughs) Uh, Do you think, you know, were these two things causing one another or are they caused simply by people asking enough different questions that you start to see this and and you know the answer to that question? And that's, you know, by by doing this kind of pre-registration, you rule out. The possibility of doing that kind of data dredging after the fact, um, and they've they've done a great job of, of actually getting up quite a quite a few people to to adopt this practice, and quite a few I mean importantly quite a few journals to adopt this practice.
0: Yeah, that's the to my mind the real secret. If you get the journals to agree to commit to publish the result, of course that means they also have to agree to publish negative findings, which is right. quite
1: rare in the journal space. That's right. Yeah, and then I mean what you really want ultimately, of course, is is For your peers to actually take it much more seriously if it's been done that way, so not just to sort of pay a lot of attention and give tenure to people who've obtained sort of sexy results using pretty low quality methodology, but actually to people who've done the, the really high looked for the really high quality evidence, and that's also starting to happen. Actually, one of the things. All right, when I first heard about this, I thought, "Eh, it's not that important. And one of the things that changed my mind about it was starting to hear talking to individual, it was individual psychologists and individual neuroscientists, actually, who would say things like, I don't believe my own papers before 2016. And that's, I mean, that's a shocking statement. They're sort of discounting a large fraction of their prior professional work. And it was just because they'd, you know, they'd, they'd written those papers in good faith. They thought they were doing the outstanding scientific work. And now they don't believe uh, sort of the statistical methods that they were using. And that was pretty shocking to me. And it, it, it starts to, I think, point at the, the cultural shift that's happening there.
0: Yeah, and it's really, it is interesting and, and quite profound. When I read that quote. I go, whoa, that's that's a sign of a, a real cognitive change, a change in how people are framing their whole careers, you know, which is really doesn't happen too often. Who was it that said, was it one of the 19th century German guys, science progresses one funeral at a time, uh, right? Plank.
1: <laughs> Planck.
0: that's right. It was Planck, right? Yeah. But when that doesn't, when you don't have to wait for that, that's a sign that you've really done something important. Another thing that, uh, you know, that you, you guys mentioned, I know uh, Center for Open Science has been working on this as well, is to strongly encourage people to publish their data and methods. You know, again, makes it a lot harder to do spurious correlations and other forms of p-hacking if the data is there and combine that with pre-registration. And it really does a good job of uh, sort of, say, say, cleaning up the method of science quite a bit.
1: Yeah, actually... I, know, I don't know it's it's always a little terrifying to publish your uh, data or code. <laughs> it is funny that sort of the I don't know the, the final few hours before hitting essentially send. I, I know I personally find it uh, you know a little bit of panic. It's like did I you know up to that point I was sure, but then uh, when you're going to make it available to everybody else, uh, all of a sudden you know am I sure? I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's that's the right kind of pressure to have.
0: It is. I know one thing I've always, you know, it makes me kind of nervous is when, you have, when, I, if I, when I publish software to go along with something. And, you know, I am a talented one man software writer, but I do so by horrible bad practices, no documentation, crazed structures. And I go, anyone's going to look at this code carefully is going to think I'm a deranged individual. And uh, eventually I just said, I don't care. It works, and they can and they can walk through it. But you know, uh, I would really not want to spend my time prettifying my code just to, just in support of a paper, as an example. But perhaps a perverse pressure that that some people at least might feel. So let's move it on to the next. Maybe we'll call this the final one. We're coming up on our time here, pretty close. Which is that you take. The example of Nozick and Center of Open Science, and generalize that to the concept of a meta science entrepreneur. And you lay out a process by which meta science entrepreneurs, and basically anyone that wants to practice meta science, might think about. So maybe talk about the idea of a meta science entrepreneur. And if you still remember it, the uh, little flowchart diagram that you had in, in the
1: paper. <laughs> sure. I mean, the, the the top level sort of takeaway is, I mean, for one thing, there is no name for this. There is no name for what people like Nozick are doing. This idea of trying to create scalable improvements in the social processes of science. So we we just felt that that this needed a name, and actually it's it's resonated a surprising amount. I, I'm not actually fond of the term meta science entrepreneur but there definitely needs to be a, a name for, for this for this concept, that, that kind of person. Especially just, I mean, for very banal reasons, you want a community of practice, you want people to be able to meet each other, you want people to be able to mentor each other, those kinds of, those kinds of things. And then I, I think if you look at the actual changes which have been wrought in science in the last 20, 30, 50 years, so things like uh, the growing, the rise in preprints, the rise in open access, the rise in open data, these changed method, methods in uh, psychology, which we are now spreading to other areas, they've almost always been driven by single individuals or very small groups of people, typically, I mean, very often acting outside an academic context, coming in and just working very, very hard to, to drive change in some way or another. So we just wanted to sort of distill out that and to try and find a few of the key patterns of, of meta-science entrepreneurship to sort of act as a bit of a template for other people.
0: Yeah, cool. One of the examples you give, which has made, you know, again, a quite substantial impact in some disciplines less than others, is archive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's Paul Ginsberg, who was, I guess, a staff scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, who just realized that it would be pretty good for uh, initially high-energy physicists to be able to uh, publish their preprints to, actually, I think initially it was email, but it quickly moved to the web, which was brand new at the time, 1991, 1992. And he uh, wasn't exactly supported in this endeavour uh, all that well by uh, his peers at the lab at the time. In fact, he got a negative performance review and left, but he's changed science dramatically. Certainly, he's changed physics incredibly. You know, that's that's where you, you publish your paper first now, once you're done, months in advance of the journal publication or years, and it's spread to a lot of other spread to a lot of other fields. Again, I mean, you know, for the sort of the money invested, I don't know what the budget is now. It's, it's gotta be on the order of a million dollars a year. They're supporting kind of the key publishing infrastructure for, I don't know what percentage of science, 10% or something like that. I mean, it's it's just an incredible return on the, the dollar. And, and it's, I mean, it's not just that return, it's also the change in working practices the fact that it is possible for everybody to see in near real time uh, the advances that other people are making is is a really big change and it's just wrought by a, a very small group of people
0: and uh, an interesting kind of after the fact impact is essentially all machine learning and closely related artificial (laughs) intelligence technology is posted on Archive hundreds of papers a day, right? And I think one could arguably say that that field would have looked quite different if it had emerged. Let's call it the uh, post-Hinton, you know, 2008, 2009 version of deep learning and AI. Uh, The field would have, uh, have organized itself differently and probably progressed much more slowly if they weren't able to accept
1: Archive. Does that that seem reasonable to you? Seems pretty plausible to me. It's funny. It's like it gives and it takes away. The give is it enables everybody, you know, everything to go much faster. The takeaway is I talk to my machine learning friends and they, you know, they're just they're drowning under this tidal wave. The papers. They can't even read the abstracts. <laughs> Never mind the papers.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's it what's evolved are curators on Twitter who yeah. read all or part of the flow and then pull forth the ones that they think are worthy. And some of the people are pretty good. Carlos Perez is a really, really good. He doesn't spend as much of his time as he used to. He used to be seemed like it's full-time job, reading the flow into archive ML and uh, pulling out four or five a day. And he said, This is worth looking at.
1: Yeah. Actually, there's and there's other people have built tools on top of it. I know Andre Kapathy has this uh, Archive Sanity thing, which is partially you know he created uh, to deal with. That's a tool. It's kind of an overlay on top of Archive created to deal with it. But I don't think anybody's fully got it under. Uh, n- nobody seems all that happy with the way things are at the moment. It's, uh,
0: hey, so meta science uh, entrepreneur, come on, somebody step forward. Exactly. And, exactly. let's, uh, and let's uh, add an extra level on top of this. Well, I think we're about up to our time here. Michael, Michael Nielsen on science, a really interesting discussion today. And now where's the name of your website? It was michaelnotebook.com, I think it was, right?
1: That's right. Yep.
0: Yep. That's a place to learn about, more about Michael and his work. And, and oh, by the way, he's interested in quantum computing, uh, quantum mechanics, and AI. He writes on those topics as well. So thank you, Michael, for a really good show today.
1: Thanks so much, Jim. I really enjoyed this.
0: Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.